Welcome to another edition of Garden Talk. Hi, Larry Miller here. Great to have you along today as we talk edible gardening on the show with our guest, Kevin Chesso. Kevin is the Agriculture Development Educator for UW-Madison's Division of Extension in uh, Burnett, Sawyer, and Washburn counties. He's been with us a number of times to talk about what's going on in the garden, and great to have him back. What questions do you have about your garden? Give us a call. The number is 800-642-1234 or 1-800-642-1234. Send an email as well if you'd like. The email address ideas at wpr.org. Ideas at wpr.org. Kevin Chesso, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Well, thank you very much, Larry. It's always a pleasure, and I look forward to our conversations and answering uh, whatever garden questions come in today. So I'm I'm just wondering, uh, what's the rain situation in your area of the state? Are you getting enough rain? Oh, yes. Um, we just had a, about a half-inch thunderstorm, one of these pop-up cells that went over, you know, the Spooner area, but it's probably only a five or 10 mile radius cell. So those pop-up showers have been happening on and off, but we are definitely short of our average and it's been just enough. But if you're not getting those pop-up showers, uh, that's a big, big difference. So we're hanging in there. I was so happy to see that rain yesterday afternoon. It came down pretty hard, but we'll take what we get. And one thing that we all know is when we're gardening, especially with edibles, we, and this is a saying I have, we're basically just packaging water into different sizes and shapes and flavors because most of our edible food, as you know, has got a lot of water in it. And, you know, if we don't have enough water, we don't get the, uh, the production and the yield and the crop that we hope. So water is so important and it's tough to keep up with uh, irrigation and hand watering. It really is hard. That. So a good old old-fashioned. So I feel for people who are, are getting shorted by Mother Nature right now, but it's variable, and I've talked to colleagues across the state, and you just can't assume, right? You know, you just have to, everybody's in, a, in their own unique situation. So it's unfortunate when it doesn't rain, but what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? And, you know, typically we hope for about an inch or equivalent <laughs> with through the garden hose a week. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the, that, you know, there's lots of rules of thumbs in gardening, as you know, and that's one that, you know, we should be thinking about about an inch of, of moisture, rainfall, irrigation a week. Of course, that's hugely dependent on soil type, uh, your soil condition. And I've been on this show before, Larry, you know me, I'm always advocating for the soil. And it all starts with healthy soil with lots of, you know, rich organic matter additions and building up soil structure and I call it that sponge of that humus and all of that helps our soils be more resilient for all kinds of things including moisture and when we don't have enough moisture that makes a huge difference when you have you know maybe that organic mulch you put down to hold in moisture or just the organic matter in the soil will retain some of that moisture and and hold on to it rather than letting it you know uh, you know just infiltrate in so yes uh soil soil organic matter compost mulch all that stuff is part of um, managing moisture uh, when you don't have it coming from the sky 
Yeah. So. Well, we have some, a caller online. Let's go uh, to Terry in Melrose and see what's on Terry's mind. Hi, thank you for calling. Hello, this is Terry. Yeah. Yeah, what's on your mind? Well, I, 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 we noticed this year that our, our cabbage heads are much smaller than what they have been using the same uh, plants that we did the year before. And uh, and then the tomatoes not being as big as they were from last year, and also the ripening. And then uh, we were kind of wondering what was causing that. And then we went to the uh, far- farmer's market in Black River Falls, and the uh, people that were selling there were saying that the same problem, that their that cabbage heads and tomatoes weren't doing like they were from the year before, and they were blaming it on the uh, smoke that was up here quite a bit during the time. Yeah, I wonder if that could be part of the issue. Is that's what they thought it was. Uh, hmm. Smoke, okay. Well, on. again, yeah. <laughs> if you think like a plant, you know, what does a plant need to be happy and healthy and grow big and robust is, you know, all those basic uh, things that uh, all living organisms need, you know, sunshine, nutrients, plenty of water we already touched on that so i i don't know if there's uh, a, a significant impact of the of the haze and obviously it's going to interfere with sunshine and the, and the, the intensity of that sunshine coming down and shining on plants and helping them with photosynthesis but you can't rule that out as maybe a, a possible um, impact but there's so many other variables that plants see during the course of their life and weather and weather conditions, soil, all those variables impact, you know, that. Um, but I, I want to go back to what I just started with, with moisture. Um, and it all depends on, you know, where that rain falls and how much and the timing of that rain and if the plants are even accessing that moisture. Just a quick side note here. You know, I, I work at the Spooner Ag Research Station. We have a teaching and display garden. And we have garlic in, in that garden bed or in that garden plot. And we also have uh, access to copious amounts of water. So we irrigated that display garden many times through our overhead, you know, uh, irrigation set up here at the, at the station. So we had plenty of moisture in our garden this year. I planted the same garlic at my house a half a mile away, same soil type. And the garlic bulbs I just harvested from our display garden were ginormous. The ones I harvested from my backyard that only got hand-watered were about half the size. So I, I relate that directly to water. Now, if that's, you know, that's my interpretation, but I would assume uh, water has got to be an indication of, of the size of our fruits as well. So, yeah, lots of things to consider, but I want to kind of just say maybe it's just the weather. You know, the dry weather we've been having. Yeah, maybe there's some small effect by the small, you know, there's all kinds of things that maybe together create the firestorm that um, uh, that you might think your garden has, has run into. No doubt about it. Uh, Terry, thanks uh, very much for calling. I appreciate your call. Smoke may play some bit of a role in it. Water is certainly going to play a, a big role in it. So 
about what we can tell you, and I appreciate your call very much. You can join in, too, by the way. The number to call is 1-800-642-1234, or you can shoot us an email to ideas at wpr.org. Well, it's kind of mid-season for our gardens, uh, Kevin, um, what about care this time of the year for, you know, it's getting to the time where you think, oh, gee, it's <laughs> starting to feel oh, yes. like work out there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Add in the heat, uh, cause we've had some really hot, humid days out here. And if you're out anytime during midday, you know it. So, you know, you got to work around the weather and, and do all that, of course, but, uh, yeah, this is the time of year when everything's starting to just happen, right? You put in all this effort, you know, weeks and months ago, and now it's all coming to fruition, assuming, you know, you you have some success. So my priorities this time of year, of course, we've been scouting and doing what we can to manage our plants all along. But if we're successful, you know, now this is the goal, right, is we want to harvest all that uh, edible food. And now is when that stuff is happening. And it's sometimes hard to keep up. But I really make that a priority, and I encourage people to try to pick and harvest uh, all the ripe fruit on a timely fashion. So that's something that, you know, it's hard maybe to keep up, and then what do you do with all this stuff? But I'd rather have it off of the plant and in a basket or in my kitchen or give it to somebody than sitting on the plant rotting or taking energy away from other uh, fruits that are trying to develop. So just general, you know, keeping up on harvest and and then when you're doing that you can you know do some pruning there's a lot of extra vigor sometimes in in our vine crops we can start pruning off those suckers or those uh extra laterals coming off of our vine crops if we already have some good fruit set you know maybe you know that's important to do because again we our goal at least for me is i want to harvest a nice healthy you know uh edible fruit or lettuce or whatever I'm, I'm harvesting. And, and that all takes time to keep the plant doing that. And that's where you got to, you know, remove stuff that you don't need and continue your weeding and scouting and all the things that happen when we're outside in the garden that we might miss if we're not out there. I'm, I'm in my garden every single day doing something. You know, a lot of it is watering this time of year, but, <laughs> yeah. but harvest, harvest is where it's at right now. And, and uh, that's, my priority, but there's other things we can do along the way too. Somebody's wondering about fertilizing. Or uh, would you do any fertilizing at this time of the year in in your garden? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, the exception there would be, and this is a topic that you know is on my kind of to do list too. Is can we do succession planting? this time of year and we're right in the window where it's closing quickly. But the only time I would put fertilizer on this time of year uh, would be in a a new garden bed where you're doing succession planting. So that fall crop of lettuce or kale or, um, you know, peas, you know, you're going to be planting new seeds. So that's when you can maybe, you know, refresh the soil, put in a little composted manure. If you're into commercial fertilizer, maybe put a little bit of commercial fertilizer in there because you're starting with a new plant a new seed and that plant is going to need maybe some of that extra nutrients but our our established plants unless they're yellowing and looking like they're starved of nutrients uh, i typically don't um, apply fertilizer this time of year but it depends right 
Um, hopefully you did that early enough in the season to catch those nutrient deficiencies rather than waiting till now. But if you need it, I guess you can go ahead and put a little down. Uh, I guess there's no harm in that, but it's typically not the time we're doing a lot of fertilizing. Yeah, I, I certainly would agree with that. And uh, the, the other part of the question was what kind of fertilizer if you do put some down? Yeah, um, you know, we've got options there. Uh, I'm always thinking about you know, making sure those nutrients are available when the plant needs them. Um, and some of our commercial fertilizers, they're readily available like right now, you know, within days of putting it down. If you get a little moisture, you water it in. Um, so you don't want to waste those nutrients. You don't want them to run off. You don't want them to leach. You know, so if you've got an actively growing plant, um, you know, commercial fertilizers are really kind of quick acting. That's one of the advantages of, of some of those products. But uh, anything that has a fertilizer value on the product, and you'll see that, you know, the 10, 10, 10 that we often talk about, you know, that's the N, P, and K that's on the bag. And that's supposed to be, you know, what's available to plants. It's just how quickly does it get to the plant and the plant accesses it. So when we use organic fertilizers, you have to have a little bit of microbial activity and let that kind of uh, release into the soil. And those are slow-release products. And that's the advantage of the organics is that they're slow-release, plus they're bringing in all kinds of other benefits um, that a commercial salt fertilizer does not. So I tend to lean towards uh, organic-based uh, type fertilizers uh, over the commercial stuff, but both are appropriate. And you just got to follow label and uh, instructions. And, of course, if you have a soil test, keep that in mind and how much to apply because you don't want to burn your plants or, you know, waste fertilizer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Kevin Shesso, our guest, Ag Development Educator for Extension in Burnett, Sawyer, and Washburn Counties. You can join in, too. Question or comment, I hope you will. Uh, how's the gardening going in your neck of the woods? Give a call. The number's 800-642-1234, 1-800-642-1234, or email to ideas at WPR.org. Jill Nadeau's our producer uh, today, Trina LaSusa, our engineer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Thanks for joining us for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Kevin Shesso, who's uh, Ag Development Educator for Extension in Burnett, Sawyer, and Washburn Counties. Great to see the calls coming in. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at WPR.org. Tim in Washburn, we'll give you a chance to join in. Hi, Tim. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, we didn't do our research all the way, I have to admit, but we put some pompous grass in, and I've been cutting it in spots with a lawnmower. It's just kind of taken over. What's the best way of getting rid of it without using like a glycophosphate or mm -hmm. things like that? Or is that the only way to get rid of it? I really don't want to use that chemical. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes when we, we plant some of these ornamental, you know, grasses or any, any number of plants, uh, we have to keep in mind, you know, how aggressive they are and how invasive that's again, relative depending on, you know, your situation, but uh, some plants can be very aggressive in their spreading and they have these underground stolons and corms and root systems that 
it's why they, you know, are noted for their, you know, that characteristic. So, um, yes, there's always the herbicide option. And, you know, one thing that advantage of that is you get that translocation of a product like glyphosate, and then it, you know, works its way down into the roots and it can kill those living tissues below ground. Might take one or two applications to completely do that, but it's relatively effective and uh, I don't say quick and easy, but there's all the pros and cons, right? Every time we make a decision, we got to weigh that out. Use our critical thinking skills to say, well, you know, here's the advantages. And I, I, I think that's nice to have, but what are the disadvantages? And there's plenty of reasons to shy away from some of our more, you know, conventional herbicide synthetic chemistries for all kinds of reasons. So now we get into this, how else, what are the other non-spray options is what we often hear people say, I don't want to spray anything. How else, you know, what else can I do to kill it? And with those underground structures in, in some of our, you know, plants and grasses in particular, we almost have to like starve that plant and kill those rhizomes over time by not letting them regrow and re-sprout. And depending on how extensive that root system is, um, and it gets to be a rather unsightly thing, but black plastic over, you know, cut it real short and just solarize it, we call it. You cook it under this black plastic, you deny it from sunshine, nutrients or water, and maybe, you know, it dies out over time because it can't, you know, regenerate starves itself out, but that's a long-term process and it's a little unsightly depending on how big a piece of plastic you got to put down but that's certainly i think an option you know you could try other types of mulch instead of a plastic you could go with something more organic and just smothering it with wood chips or some other barrier uh, that is going to deny that plant from you know what it needs to be happy with sunshine and water and all that stuff. But, you know, the, the, it, it's not an easy, an easy thing to, to do. Um, that's why the chemicals seem to be um, preferred by some because it's fairly convenient. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhat quicker, you know, those kind of things. So those would be my suggestions. Tim, thanks again for calling. Uh, let's go to Joey in lacrosse. Hi, Joey. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. I uh, enjoy the program, first-time caller. Uh, I had two questions. The first is I inherited an orchard of a few trees. It was well overgrown. I did as much pruning as I could in the spring, um, but given the drought, um, I was thinking about doing some more summer pruning just to let the sun into those those uh, apples. I didn't know if it was going to be more stressful or I should be more uh, hesitant. Uh, and my second question was about uh, the fertilizer a couple calls ago. Uh, I've heard that you could uh, give this late, like a high PK fertilizer um, uh, for those melons and cucumbers to stop the vining uh, and the green growth. But, again, thanks for taking my call, and I'll take the answer up on the air. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much for calling. What do you think? That a couple of questions there, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, on the apple trees, um, I, I totally get it. Man. <laughs> uh, you know, a neglected orchard or a neglected landscape planting uh, can really get to be a, a jungle. And, you know, if you've inherited this from a previous owner or you just didn't have time to take care of it for whatever reason, and now you got this you know, issue that you want to deal with. So pruning is certainly uh, advantageous on a lot of 
uh, our fruit trees for all kinds of reasons. But the rule of thumb for pruning is it's best to do pruning when the tree is dormant, right? So taking stuff out now is is probably not ideal. And yes, you may think it's, you know, interfering with, you know, you know the 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 ripening of fruit or maybe you you have more disease potential because it's so thick and it holds moisture on the leaves and stuff you know but with our woody perennials we really want to do our pruning um once i would say once the leaves have dropped so you know do that you can see that the, the branch structure when it's when the leaves are out of the way so you can do some in the fall but uh typically we do our pruning on on fruit trees and other woody perennials in the late winter and early spring. Uh, the exception to this rule would be plants uh, like grapes. Those perennial woody plants, we do prune during the growing season for all kinds of reasons. Totally different plant than an apple tree. Um, on the cucumber and uh, just the late season fertilizing, again, I, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't be. It, you have to have reasons to um, one of the things we want to avoid, though, is the high nitrogen fertilizers this time of year because it's too late in the season for most in most cases because all that's going to do is promote all kinds of growth. And if we get too much bigger, too much vine growth, like in our vine crops um, or putting on new leaf shoots, we're defeating the purpose of promoting flowers and fruit production. So that's where well, okay, I'm not going to put down a nitrogen fertilizer. What about a P, a phosphorase, or a potassium-based fertilizer? Again, you know, you have to have reasons to do that. And uh, the, the challenge with phosphates is it builds up in our soil, and it can cause water quality problems if it goes off-site. Uh, potash doesn't necessarily do that. So, if, you know, we know potash is important for fruit set, and same with phosphate. Uh, so I guess, you know, you could try it, but I always go back to the soil test that if you don't need it, maybe you don't need to put it down, but, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Try it on a few plants and see if the late season P and K additions make a difference and compare to a plant that doesn't get it. So a lot of, you know, it depends, but nitrogen you want to stay away from. Yeah, for sure. Thanks uh, for that question. Appreciate it. Perry in Reedstown, we'll go to you. Hi, thank you for calling. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm just curious about what are the best um, plants to grow, you know, for a fall crop that could be planted now. I have harvested my spinach. I've harvested my lettuce. I have harvested my arugula. Um, These were grown in pots on my back deck. And I'd like to plant something for fall. And what would you recommend to be, uh, you know, the most uh, advantageous to plant now for fall harvest? Okay. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you're. this is exactly the kind of conversation I like to have because I've got containers all over my backyard. My deck is full of them. And I do that specifically so I can just walk outside my sliding doors with my pruners or scissors and harvest a salad literally every single night. And you're right, those plants, go, go, they bolt 
they get bitter, they run their course. Now is the perfect time to think about fall planting, but we need to keep in mind how much frost-free days do we have left in our growing season. So depends on where you're located in the state and when do you anticipate that killing frost. So that's always the first consideration. But right now, the first week in August, we still have, again, depending on your location, somewhere between 45 and maybe 70 days of frost-free growing on average, right? It depends. You can get a, a, a killing early frost anywhere, but that's what we have to base it off. And now that you're in containers, you can actually move those containers, cover them, so you can even extend your growing season a little further in a container than you might in the ground. So there's plenty of things you can do this time of year. Um, Again, keeping in mind that 45 to 70 days of frost-free growing left. You plant the seed today, how long is it going to take before you can harvest that leaf or that radish or even a carrot? Um, You know, so that's where I always start. So uh, there is any number of vegetables that fit into that days to maturity between 45 and 70, like I said. So, you know, you could do basil. You might want to try a bush bean even. That would be stretching it a little bit. Um, cabbages, our leafy green cabbages, our collards, kale, um, spinach, peas, turnips, all of those uh, should work the remaining season we have. And then you have to take into account which ones are very frost sensitive because we know those plants are going to go into the frost periods of you know, September and maybe into October when we expect frost. But if you're growing something that's really hardy, like kale, that'll go down into the 20s. I've harvested kale that had snow on it in November <laughs> up here in Spooner. Right? So, so kale is one of those rock-solid, you know, hardy plants. So, you know, if you want to, uh, if you don't think you got a lot of time left in your growing season, plant something that's really hardy like kale or collard greens, some of our cabbages, cabbage-like uh, uh, plants are very cold-hardy. Um, basil and bush beans, you whisper frost, and they're going to start to wilt, right? So you just have to keep all this in mind as you select what kind of plants you, you have time in your planting window, uh, what kind of uh, planting are you doing, like in a container. you got to keep in mind the, the size of the plant. So all those lettuce greens work fabulous in containers. Um, you know, you just got to keep in mind, you don't want to plant them too close together, but I always say a fist apart. So about four inches between my plants. And I always do seeds, uh, plant seeds and starter trays and then transplant them to where you want them. Cause then you don't have to waste seed and do all this thinning in the container or in the row with the exception, of course, radishes and carrots, those we mass plant and thin, but some of these others, um, you know, like the greens, that's that's what we do. So there's tons of options, I think, yet. Um, and if you go online and search uh, planting vegetables in fall, fall vegetable planting extension, you're going to get all kinds of uh, information from different universities. And if you don't know what your frost-free period is, there's interactive maps that you can go to, and it'll tell you what those averages are And if you don't know that already. Um, because that's always, you know, uh, something you learn from years of doing this. And when do you expect that killing frost? So 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a great time to be thinking about that and um, go for it, Barry. <laughs> go for it. Oh, thanks very much for calling. Appreciate your call. Well, Shane in Door County has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Shane. Hey, sorry. It's the first time that I've called. And, um, so I just want to talk about um, getting a compost bin started from like nothing because I'm looking at trying to get um, more natural fertilizer for my garden. So I'm just wondering if you have some tips. I made a huge mistake and put some meat in it, some venison that I had, and I learned you know, a little too late that you're not supposed to put meat in it. So if you could just call about or talk about that, I'll take my answer off there. Thank All you. Right. Thanks, Shane. All right. Well, thanks so much for this, uh, this question. It is um, it, composting in my opinion needs to be part of our gardening situation. And if, if we're gardening, we should be composting, but not everybody is able to do that. And I understand that. Um, there is all kinds of information online on this subject, of course, but I'm going to just hit the basics here because I could, you know, this could be a half hour show or a whole show just on composting. And I think Larry, you've brought this topic topic up many times in the past, but it all starts with understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish in the composting process. So you are trying to farm microorganisms that are decomposers of plant debris for the most part, right? You mentioned, uh, you know, the meats and the fats and, you know, some of those organic compounds. But when we're backyard home composting, those are things that are on the do not add list for obvious reasons. So there's a basic concept or I call a recipe that we need to be thinking about, just like when we cook. You know, if you get it right, boy, it turns out wonderful. If you're a little off in your recipe or you get things you know, not quite right, your compost is going to tell you, you know, it's not going to turn out quite like you like. So uh, browns and greens are the two main ingredients. So browns being, you know, high carbon materials and greens being the lower carbon, higher nitrogen uh, materials. So anything that comes out of our kitchen food, you know, you're making your salads, you're cutting up vegetables, you're eating fruit, the banana peels, you know, any of those kind of kitchen scraps are typically considered the green. Uh, we can get green materials from our lawn, fresh cut lawn, higher nitrogen content in, in it's called the carbon to nitrogen ratio. And I won't get into the, the number there, but, you know, those greens are what we want to uh, think about as a part of the recipe. And then the browns are drier plant debris, leaves, that could include any leaf, in my opinion, you know, oak leaves to pine needles. Um, once they're dried, there's no acid. There's very little tannins left. So if they're dry, they're brown, that's a high carbon. You can use straw. You can use, uh, you know, other high carbon materials. I, I just like my go-to is shredded leaves that I harvest in the fall. I got a big pile of those. So when I dump my kitchen scraps in my compost bin, I always cover them with a layer of shredded leaves that I collected the fall before. So you have to think about this and how are you going to come up with the ingredients for this recipe? And this time of year, brown materials are a little bit harder to find <clears throat> because we don't have the, the leaf materials on the, on the ground just yet. 
But if you collect them in the fall and stockpile them, you, you got those, you know, brown materials. So the ratio is about one part green to two parts uh, brown thereabouts or one, one part to three parts um, and layer them and mix them, add water because you got to feed the bite microbial, act, you know, stuff without water they're they're going to, you know, not propagate and be happy. So you got to feed your compost livestock, which are those bacteria and the fungus and the molds and the sow bugs and the centipedes. Once all that gets going, that livestock, that compost life needs to be fed, needs to be watered. So you can passively do it. Just put it in a pile and leave it and let nature do what it wants to do. Or you can really manage that. Um, and I go as far as cutting up some of my scraps before I put them in the compost pail in the kitchen. So we have smaller shredded plant debris, more surface area, breaks down quicker. I've got my shredded leaves. I run through the mower, same concept. Uh, but that's me, and I've been doing this for a long time, but it works. You know, it's that yeah. concept, build it and they will come. And it certainly does make a difference if you pay attention to some of those basic details, ratios of brown to green, particle size, water. And then I flip my compost one time a year. Every July is when I take my heap, a whole year's worth of additions and layering, and I flip it to my middle bin, and it sits there, and I don't do anything more with it. So uh, go online, look up composting, colon, extension, and you'll get all kinds of good stuff. It's good, uh, good advice there. Let's go to Rocky in Madison next. Hi, Rocky. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I've got uh, some watermelon seeds, and I was wondering if I could plant them under black plastic and still get some growth this year. Oh, un- yeah. <laughs> yeah, Too Larry, you probably watermelon. <laughs> yes, it is. Unfortunately, that's where when you look at the seed packet or if you do a little bit of investigating about some of these crops, What's the days to maturity? And we have wonderful selections in our plant breeding and all of our different seeds that are, you know, available to us as gardeners that are designed for short season and, and whatnot. But I don't know of a watermelon that will go from seed to ripe fruit in less than, uh, uh, well, there might be some that might make 90 days, but most of them are 100 or longer so we just don't have the growing season outdoor in the ground. Black plastic is going to heat up that soil and, you know, speed up the process, the maturity. But you have to do season extension, put them under a hoop, protect them from killing frost. But you're losing the, the battle as we get into October. There's just not enough heat. So uh, watermelons is not something I would recommend planting in Wisconsin or even the upper Midwest this time of year, unless you have season extension and, uh, you know, the climate that's going to get them their 100 days of growth. Yeah, you, you're looking at November <laughs> would be the time uh, that the watermelons would be ready in, in November. And just it's not going to work. Uh, just not going to work. And a lot less sun. There, there's all kinds of things. But uh, plant something else, Rocky. Save those seeds and maybe try them out next year. Um, uh, and see what happens then. Christina in Glenwood will go to you next. Hi, Christina. Hi, 
Sure, thank you. Although I'm an hour away from Spooner, pre-COVID, I would look forward to attending the open house event at your research center. It was a fantastic learning experience. I'm wondering, do you still do that? And if so, when? Boy, is this a planted call or what, Larry? (laughs) No. (laughs) Definitely wanted to talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much, Christina. Uh, And and thank you for making the trip uh, all the way up from Glenwood City to our annual Twilight Garden Tour. So that is uh, this year. It's uh, on a Thursday, um, and it's August 24th. And it's basically an open house kind of social um, we have uh, various speakers on the, our agenda, but if uh, it goes from 4 p.m. to dusk, but it usually is somewhere around 7, 7.30, it, it peters out. So it is open to the public. There's no charge. Uh, the garden, it's called our teaching and display garden. It's on the research station property here in Spooner. It's on, uh, and the research station is right on Highway 70, if you're familiar with the roads up here. And uh, it's about one acre. We're an official All-America Selections display garden. We have this fantastic pollinator. We call it our Monarch and Pollinator Sanctuary Garden that is just rocking and rolling right now with all kinds of pollinators. Uh, So that's a highlight, too, because it's all these blooms, most all native plants. So that's a big attraction. And then our All-American stuff. But we've got vegetables. we got two rows of grapes. Uh, some hops that we throw up for demonstration, a few apple trees. Um, but it's it's open to the public, and you can come anytime. You don't have to come just on our Twilight Tour. But if you want to hear some of our speakers or uh, talk to our volunteers or master gardeners or get some of these garden questions mm-hmm. answered, yep. Uh, so, yeah, please stop by if you're traveling through. Highway 53 is literally a quarter mile or half mile from the garden. You just got to go off the 70 exit and, and it's on orchard lane on the North side of highway 70, right in the center of the research station property. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, a real gem. So I appreciate the uh, opportunity to plug that. Thank you uh, very much, Christina. And uh, I'm sure that Kevin will be more than happy to welcome you <laughs> to that event. Oh, man. Kevin Chesso, our guest ag educator for UW-Madison's Division of Extension in Burnett, Sawyer, and Washburn counties. You can join in. Number to call 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at WPR.org. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Miller here taking a look at the vegetables primarily, but we've uh, strayed a little bit into some other areas uh, with Kevin Shesso, Ag Development uh, Educator for UW Extension. Uh, Lyman and McFarland has a question for you. Let's go there. Hi, Lyman. Oh, we lost Lyman. Uh, Jen in Madison emailed that she's been collected, uh, she's collected wine corks from a local restaurant and has been using them as mulch. Wonders if it's a good idea. They swell up when they have rain on them and then they get smaller again. She's assuming it's get uh, getting released into the soil. 
So that's a question I don't remember I ever had before here on the show, but what do you think, Kevin? Wow. Talk about a creative uh, thinking there and, and reusing, repurposing, uh, you know, natural cork. You know, again, I'm just thinking about what is this material we're, you know, using for for a mulch. And I've never heard of this before, Larry. And I'm just thinking, well, why not? You know, I, I'm assuming they're just left as is versus, you know, shredding them. And how would you do that? You know, you just collect them and throw them on the ground, I suppose. We do a lot of mulching in our teaching display garden with wood chips. You know, and it's it's a nice material to cover the soil, and you know it's a good barrier, and we walk on it and stuff. But I've never even considered doing that. Yeah. So it's if it's natural, and the cork is cork, like you said, they swell up. I, I it's very very interesting concept. I guess. Yeah, I wouldn't. Why, why not? Why not give it? Yeah, yeah why not? Try. It seems to be working. She also yeah. went. She also wondered about raised bed height. Uh, she wants to plant things like carrots or radishes. Well, that would be two different heights. But uh, uh, how how high do you need to have a raised bed for carrots or radishes? Yeah, so again, it's just like our earlier conversation of understanding the plants you want to grow and, and you know, how they grow and how much space they need and this and that. So, you know, again... And we're talking a root crop, and that's what we're interested in growing and eating and harvesting. And the rooting depth of, you know, both of those plants um, isn't extremely deep. Um, carrots, obviously, would probably go a little deeper, depends on the variety. But you know, if you have, a, 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 I would say, a minimum of one foot of planting depth, that should be plenty uh, for the, the roots and the depth to, you know, to grow those to maturity. Obviously, if it's a little deeper, that would be fine. Um, so if you're doing a raised bed and it's in ground, you know, you just need to put sides that go up from the ground level, you know, about a foot or 18 inches and fill it with whatever, you know, soil mix or potting mix or soilless, whatever media or your garden soil if you're doing it in ground. So I would say 12 to 18 inches is more than enough for a container raised bed uh, for those two. Yeah, makes sense to me. Janie in Elkhorn has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Janie. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have an old pine tree uh, that doesn't have much growth uh, up to about 12 feet from the ground. So there's there's lots of sun below it, and I was wondering uh, about planting some blueberries underneath that. Yeah, um, you know, I again, you know, you have to understand what does a blueberry plant need to be happy and healthy and productive, and of course, as we all should know, or maybe not, you know, blueberries are an acid-loving plant. They need a pH less, ideally less than five, but if we're in a 5.5 pH range, you know, seven being neutral, and as you go down, it gets more and more acidic. So um, if the soil, that's number one criteria is, do we have acid soil? And then if there's enough sunlight, then that's a big factor. You know, uh, blueberries by nature grow under the shade of a lot of different trees and some of our open, you know, um, kind of oak savanna type 
wild blueberries i'm thinking anyway so they need sun and if you've got enough sun with the you know the the lack of shade that's you know under that tree um i think what you've explained would be a reasonable uh process to to do and um it's just a matter now of how much competition might there be between the plant the the tree roots and the blueberries so you know we plant all kinds of things around and under trees and typically that's not an issue you might want to mend the soil after you plant with a nice thick layer of some kind of organic mulch blueberries benefit from uh, a heavy thick mulch i know our commercial growers are often using uh, things like wood wood chips or or shavings or something to that degree to build up that organic layer because blueberry roots don't have a lot of root hairs and they really like that that mulchy you know organic layer that you can do with you know with putting that around the base of the plants but i would start with a ph test if you are able to do that because that's going to be your first order of business if you want to have a chance of growing blueberries is making sure that pH is where it needs to be. Just because it's under a pine tree doesn't necessarily mean that soil is acidic. Yeah. Um, like it likely is, but you know, I always say, don't guess, take the test. So that's an extra step, 15 bucks through the soil department, you know, our, our soil testing lab, you can do a routine garden soil test and they'll, you know, do that. You say you're growing blueberries, They'll test it. They'll give you recommendations on what you need to do to fix the soil or amend the soil that's going to be ideal for blueberries. And that pH is the number one thing we got to be concerned about. So I think it's worth a try. Good luck. Thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. Lyman in McFarland has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Lyman. Hi there. Well, I have a question about a grapevine. Okay. Um, we have a mature grapevine in the backyard running about 30 feet or so along our chain link fence. It's a volunteer. I have no idea what it is. It's got like three trunks coming out of one spot. They're quite large, about an inch and a half, two inches in diameter. Anyway, very prolific foliage. Never gotten any grapes out of them. I trimmed it back a little bit this year, but still no results. Any idea? <laughs> Uh, another an, another very good question. Uh, this is very common when people, quote, again, inherit plants and they may not know what it is and it's been doing its thing for however many years and it's kind of a big mess now. And sometimes that's good if you like a hedge, you know, and you got all this foliage and, you know, that's one purpose of a vigorous plant like grapes, if that's something you want. But if you're after fruit production, there are specific things that you have to do to manage this plant now to encourage that. So when plants are neglected like this, especially grapes, they're super vigorous. Grapes grow fruit and fruit buds and flower buds on one-year-old canes or one-year-old growth. So when you have an, a, a big mature plant like that, there are one-year-old sprouts and, and shoots in there but they're oftentimes buried in this mass and they're not getting access to sunlight and therefore they're not going to be very fruitful. You know, so there's a bunch of stuff that's maybe causing this plant to not bear fruit and opening it up and doing some major pruning is 
going to be what kind of forces that plant back into production. So this is where we get into some really uh, tough decisions because if you've got three major trunks growing, you know, that indicates that, boy, we got a, a massive old plant here that's probably needing to be massively pruned in the fact that in some cases I tell people if you're up for it, it's a real severe pruning, you cut the entire plant off at the base. <laughs> it's yep. a little harsh. You might not, might not want to do it this time of year, but you could basically start over and if you remove all of that growth in late winter, the base of those stump is going to send up dozens and dozens of dozens of root sprouts or suckers. And that's how you start over and you select one or two of those suckers or three. And that's going to be your new plant from that day forward. But it's going to take you three more years or so before you're in production. So that's the severe approach to dealing with a massive plant like that is just start over. If you don't want to do that, again, wait till the plant is dormant and go in there and really prune out half of the, the vegetation, prune it back to, you know, a manageable space. And then from there, you're going to get new shoots coming out. And those new shoots the following year will have your grapes. And now it's how do you manage that? You keep it on the fence. So it, it's it's a little bit of a job to kind of <laughs> renovate a mature plant. There's videos out there on pruning. I'm going to just put in a personal plug for, for a couple that I've done. But Amaya Atucha, our fruit specialist at UW-Madison, she's done pruning videos. The challenge is the pruning videos that you see are often not on the plant you've got in your backyard. But the concepts are all the same. One-year-old canes produce next year's fruit. So you got to figure that out. And how do you get one-year-old canes? That's uh, that's for sure. We had that uh, publication, Growing Grapes in Wisconsin, that was uh, <laughs> that was a pretty good one at the time. And I think it's still good, isn't it, uh, Kevin? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a go-to one. And, again, use the Internet, pruning grapes, pr- pruning mature grapes, extension colon extension you'll find or go to youtube lots of options kevin shesso our guest today kevin is the agriculture development educator for uw madison's division of extension in burnett sawyer and washburn counties always fun having kevin on the show i'm larry Mueller for garden talk on the ideas network of wisconsin public radio You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest, Kevin Shesso. He's the Ag Development Educator for UW-Madison's Division of Extension in Burnett, Sawyer, and Washburn Counties. So what gardening questions do you have? Give us a call. The number is 800-642-1234. 
or send an email to ideas at WPR.org. Love to hear from you. Andrea in La Crosse has a question. Uh, Kevin, let's go there. Hi, Andrea. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, My husband and I have been organic gardening for about 50 years, and we've never had this kind of problem, but uh, Japanese beetles have just taken over our pole beans, and the things that we've tried are just hand-picking them off and and putting them into like a a container of soap and water. That definitely takes care of them, but it's tedious, and we have a lot of them. Uh, The other thing we did, and this was a gigantic mistake, was to get the traps, which seems to just invite them, put you on the map, so to speak. And the latest thing we've tried is just taking and putting mosquito netting over the trellis. But then I was worried, are we not getting enough beans because... We can't get pollinators in there. So if you have any uh, ideas of how to handle these, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you. I'll take my answer it, offline. Okay. Well, Andrea, you've uh, tried the, the the various things that that I bet Kevin would have recommended. Wow. Yeah. And um, uh, Larry, you, you're very familiar with this pest, and, and, and it's been a topic of this show and other guests you've have, have had on for many years now. And unfortunately, you know, the western edge or the western part of the state is now caught up, if you will, to everybody else. So for a long time, um, and here in Spooner, and I think in talking with, you know, Christelle Godot, who's our entomologist uh, in, the, in the horticulture department, Japanese beetle wasn't nearly as prevalent, you know, in some areas as it was, you know, down south or the eastern or certainly further east in different states. But it is now pretty much ubiquitous all over the state. We here in Spooner are dealing with our first major infestation, and they are all over our grapes. And that is one of their most favorite foods from what I've been hearing Beans uh, are not far distance in their favorite foods, but they will feed on up to 300 different plants, right? So they are just terrible when they get going. And according to PJ, and I just emailed him yesterday about this, for whatever reason, the Japanese beetle populations downstate and in the Madison area aren't nearly as bad as they've been in the past. So, you know, it's it all depends. You know, maybe the drought is impacting populations and you know the grub development and stuff but when you've got them in these large numbers and the the adults feed on all kinds of leaves they skeletonize the leaves and they obviously have a negative impact on certain plants like beans because they're just the beans there's not enough foliage to keep up with the feeding on the grapevines that i referenced i did not do any summer hedging knowing that, okay, if I just leave them, the beetles are going to do the hedging for me. It's not the best strategy, but what do you do? So there's a publication, and there's a number of them that are online. But, again, if I go back to PJ Leash, who's our entomologist, um, there's an article on the UW-Madison Horticulture website just titled Japanese Beetle. Uh, If you do an Internet search on that, it comes up with the article. But because of uh, the, the vast numbers of these things, um, one of the things they do not recommend is traps. 
Now that might be a, a logical thing to go to, but the theory there, and it's pretty well proven that you're probably just drawing in adults from adjacent areas, including the ones that are in your backyard or in your garden. So unfortunately, the traps really don't have much of an impact. Now you're getting into how do you manage what you've got. And organically, we are really challenged with options. There are some organic products, neem oil as a, as a redactin or something. It's the active ingredient that's unique to that uh, neem mix. But there's kaolin clay is another one. And then there's a BT product, Bacillus thuringiensis, that works on Japanese beetle, but they're not 100% going to wipe them out. So um, if you go to that website, there's, you know, the, the recommendations. Covering certainly helps, but now how does that impact harvest, pollination? If you need pollinators to be working the flowers and you cover them with a netting, you know, you know again, it all depends on the crop and the plant. So there are options, but they're not anything that's going to just take care of them overnight. It's a battle, right? <laughs> reduce the numbers, hand pick, right? Um, and, and do what you can to protect your crop. And I hope, just like other parts of the state, there's this background population that establishes that's not like a plague like we're seeing right now in new areas that have never had them. So I would go to that website and check it out. Um, the yep. adults lay eggs in the turf. That's where the, the adults emerge after a couple of years because it's a grub. So the females are laying eggs right now into turf. There's things you can do with your turf. Again, you know, what's your situation, you know, and how do you think about managing grubs and turf? There's some things you might try but they may not be appropriate for your situation. So tough one. I yeah. really feel for you. I'm, de yeah. I'm dealing with it the same thing right here. Yeah. The good news is, uh, at, le at least from my perspective, they just killed my grape plants, uh, vines, years back. I had a couple, three years of it, and then they were, I don't even see any. No, so they 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 have been running in a cycle at least uh, in some parts of the state, as Kevin suggested. So something to look forward to. Let's go to Carrie and Delavan. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, we've had these linden trees, the same ones for six years, and we're kind of used to the sticky that falls, you know, about August September. But this year we've had so much seed falling like since spring and it I feel like it's such a mess and it really choked out my gardens because it's just those spinner seeds that come down and there's like little fluff with it like what happened this year to my linden trees that it caused such a mess might have been something that happened last year <laughs> but uh <laughs> Uh, Kevin? Uh, yeah. Every, yes. As you know, Larry, you know, we're, we're farming and gardening and working with nature and, you know, nature has, uh, ways of throwing just like the last caller with the Japanese beetle. So, um, weather and other factors influence plants. 
and seed production, fruit set. I've heard multiple stories, and I've seen it in the in the trees up here too. We've got bumper crop of of certain plants, right? That just put out tons of flowers, and now we got fruit. So I'm assuming whatever happened last year that influences that linden tree to produce seed is something, you know, maybe it was uh, drought stress or other weather events that, um, you know, made that tree's, you know, hormones that produce flowers and i.e. the seeds, um, the mild winter or what? I mean, something happened probably a year ago because everything takes time. So those seeds were a result of a change from normal, if you will. And now we got this ginormous crop of seeds that are falling and causing, you know, this issue you've never seen before. So um, I'm assuming it's not going to reoccur every year. Uh, We typically don't see that uh, because it's this boom and bust kind of cycle that plants go through. They feel a need maybe because of stress that's like we are going to put all kinds of flowers and make all kinds of seeds because we're threatened and we we feel like we got to reproduce. So they make these bumper crops and then so much energy is involved in doing that. They might take a year off and next year you might not see hardly any. So again, it's these the peaks and valleys of of nature that we're experiencing and and maybe it is weather related, maybe not. Could be other site factors going on that that tree experienced uh, that made it produce all those seeds. So they get uh, under stress. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, they they get under stress and they want to. You know, uh, they think about, uh, "Am I in trouble here? I better start producing more seeds." Yeah, that's what nature is all about. They got to think about that next generation, and you know, all those seeds are produced for a reason, and. Maybe only 1% of them make it to an actual live plant, you know. But, yeah, maybe you got yourself a great source of mulch that you can put in your paths or something. Uh, <laughs> look at it as a positive. I don't know. It's unfortunate. But, yeah, yeah, there you go, Kerry. Thank you for calling. Uh, Gary in Milwaukee wonders has something for us. Let's go there. Oh, hello. So I caught the tail end of a question about grapes just before the news. Yeah. And I have another one here. Um, I'm thinking of, I'd like to grow some grapes in my garden in the backyard, but I live in Milwaukee. The soil is heavy, but I have been conditioning it for a number of years, and it's very high in organic matter. I actually had it tested about a month ago for the purpose of growing grapes. But as I do research on this, and I guess it's a multi-year process to get these things going, it seems like most grapes prefer a rather poor soil, almost like a gravelly soil. And my garden soil grows tomatoes awesome, but I'm, I'm not sure if it would be. There's a, there's a garden center near my house, and they, and they sell grapes, and I've looked at them, and they appear to be the kind of grapes like Frontenac and Valiant that seem to do well in heavy soil. But I'm just wondering how well you believe uh, I would do trying to grow grapes in basically a very rich garden soil. All right, you cut out there a little bit, but I think I got the gist of your question. And yes, grapes um, do just fine in less than ideal uh, conditions. And one thing we know about grapes is they are 
if they're happy, they can be super vigorous. And when you get in these high organic matter soils, high fertility soils, one of our challenges, getting back to that earlier caller of, of, you know, too much growth, too much vigor, you may not have the crop you want, and it may be harder to manage that crop. So um, you, you just have to be prepared to uh, deal with all that vigor that comes from that plant. So, you know, the pruning and training is how we intervene with that vigor. And I tell people when I prune, we do a pruning workshop in late winter, we are removing 50 to 70% of the growth from that plant. And you prune in the summer, you know, shoot thinning and pulling leaves to open it up maybe to more sunlight or whatever, you're going to prune some more. So when it's all said and done, you might take 80% of what that plant produces every year and take it off. So when you're on a vigorous site like that, that gets to be even more work in how do you train and trellis and because they need support. And now you've got to just figure that out. So just be aware that you're going to have, you can't change your soil. You can't change your site. Certainly don't go out of your way to add any more nutrients No, um, to maybe slow down the vigor, but I don't think you're going to stop that plant from being happy if it is indeed happy and has good sun and it's going to just be harder to manage because of that vigor. So that's probably the biggest downside of your, your high organic rich soil is, you know, it's a good thing, but maybe not such a good thing for grapes anyway, Gary, there you go. Thank you for calling Carrie in Reedsburg. Your turn. Hi, Carrie. Hi. I um, just wanted to comment on the Japanese beetles. I kind of discovered a, a remedy by, accident because birds have planted wild grapes along the fence um, on the back border of my garden and each year the Japanese beetles skeletonize those wild grapes but they pretty much leave everything else alone the beans and the basil and all their other favorites they um, so I just uh, I don't cut those those wild grapes back anymore I just they're they're a, a decoy plant and the Japanese beetles are welcome to them. <laughs> there you go, Carrie. A trap crop. <laughs> That's exactly what I would call this. And there is certainly reasons to do that. And if it works, you know, keep doing it, right? So I know in our vineyards, our commercial vineyards, that is a strategy because they always talk about how insects move into, you know, landscapes. And there's typically some kind of edge where they concentrate and start from. And if you can keep them concentrated to that area and, you know, maybe, just maybe they stay there and don't affect other plants. So I'm going to jinx myself here. So I'm knocking on wood. uh, But our grapes in our teaching and display garden, like I indicated, are just loaded with Japanese beetle. I'm starting to think about how do I manage them, but my thinking is, all right, they're happy. They're just having a heyday on those grapes. The grapes are still vigorous enough. We're not affecting the overall production of our grapes yet. But 10 feet away, 20 feet away are all kinds of other plants that I know they feed on. And so far, they've only been mostly, you know, 
5% of them or more are on the grapes. The grapes are getting a little shrekly, but I don't know. Am I taking my chances by not <laughs> treating them and trying to reduce the populations? But I'm okay with them on the grapes right now. It's a good teachable moment, right? Yep. If you got a trap crop and it's working, take your chances. Let them, you know, yep. let nature do its thing. And if it's working, don't fix it. Or if it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Uh, thanks, Gary, for calling. Appreciate it. Jeff in Janesville called to ask why his cucumbers are short and round. I think there are actually some varieties that are round of cucumbers, but that may yep. not be what he was expecting. Maybe he doesn't have that type or variety. Yeah. You know, anytime we have fruit, you know, you got to have complete pollination to fill up that seed cavity and, uh, when we see misshapen fruits, that's sometimes what what's going on, right? Um, but there's other stressors that can do the same thing. You know, it could be water. I've seen this, you know, in various plants that I know don't get as much water as they maybe need to. And, and as that fruit's developing, you might get a skinny neck and then a big bulb at the end. And, you know... Uh, could be a combination of, of not enough water during that fruit development or improper pollination sooner. So it's some kind of environmental stress that typically causes that. And, you know, you can't fix it once it happens, but it's just now moving forward. You know, what, what might you do to prevent that from happening again? So, yeah. you know. It's uh, it could well be water. It was Janesville area. It was pretty darn dry most of the summer here. Uh, you know, we just started getting some rain in that area of the state. Speaking of rain, uh, Kent wonders if well water is as good as rainwater for his garden. Um, I would always prefer to go with what falls from the sky. There's yeah, you can you can sometimes wonder what kind of particulates are in the atmosphere with all these, you know, fires and the haze in the air. All that ends up, you know, getting washed out of the air and it falls down to the ground in rain. But at the same time, we also know that that's how plants have evolved and lived forever, right? Just they get their water from rain for the most part. Now, there's underwater aquifers and there's other ways plants harvest water, of course. But my preference is always to go with uh, rainwater when possible. That's why rain barrels are a thing or other ways to harvest water that falls from the sky and using it later. Once we start extracting it from the ground, yeah, it can be purified and it can have a you know wonderful uh, profile if you did a water test. Um, but the other thing to consider is the temperature of that water can sometimes make a difference in how the plant responds because it could be, you know, 40 some degree water that comes out of your well and you're now irrigating with that. And that's maybe a little bit of a shock to the plant because they normally don't see that kind of temperature. Uh, but if you're in a pinch and you got to get water, to your plants, you're going to use, you know, groundwater, well water to do it. Um, but my theory, you know, my, my approach in my gardens is um, I harvest rainwater in rain barrels and in tubs, and I use that water first, and then I go to the well water. And now I'm in the city, so I've got treated water 
whatever is in there, I've never tested it, but you know, you know, it's got some fluorine maybe or chloride added because it's a municipal water system and you got to wonder, well, is that detrimental to my plants? Possibly, but what are my options? Yeah. <laughs> got to water your plants. <laughs> got to water so, your plants. Yep. If you got, if you can use rainwater, that's preferred. But if you got to water with other well water, go for it. You know, you got to keep your plants alive and happy. And you've kept us uh, alive and happy through this show, Kevin. Thank you so much uh, for being with us today. And uh, hopefully have, we have a chance to visit again. Thanks, Kevin. Well, it's always a pleasure, Larry. And this is a wonderful way to have these conversations is just let the people ask their questions. And hopefully we gave them some good answers. You did, indeed. Kevin Shesso, our guest, Ag Development Educator for UW-Madison's Division of Extension in Burnett, Sawyer, and Washburn Counties. And hope we can get him back again. Always does a great job. Uh, Looking ahead, Monday on the show, I'll be talking to Jennifer Cheverini, our author, is back to talk about our latest book. It's a dandy. Uh, It's set in uh, World War I, and the title of the book is Canary Girls. Then at 11, Mike Bino from our Wisconsin magazine... We'll share some stories about the people and places in Wisconsin. So hope you can join us for that. And, of course, um, join us for Garden Talk tomorrow morning <laughs> it's at 6 o'clock. We'll have a replay of this program. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Stay with us. Lots in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Mueller. <laughs>